Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Small trigger warning before we get into this story. There is some mention of violence toward children. Um, If that's something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip it. Go to 11 minutes, 30 seconds to skip this first story. And then the screaming starts by Brandon Fairclough. It's a delicate thing. I've made special pinatas for over 50 years on four continents, and yet, in all that time, I've only seen my work enjoyed 27 times. This year, if all went according to plan, would make 28. You might ask, what takes so long to make a pinata? My reply is that, while yes, I do take great care and pride in the creation of the vessel itself, making sure it's sturdy and aesthetically pleasing, the difficult part is ensuring that all of my very stringent criteria for using it are met. These rules, known only to me, are something I developed early on, and I found that they are critical to making sure everything goes according to plan. So we start with a party. You can't have a piñata without a party, after all. Finding parties is very simple now with social media and whatnot, and with some research, cross-referencing messages and comments, different accounts, and various other sundry tidbits of digital information, I can reliably determine when and where a party will be, what's its theme, and will there be children there of an appropriate age for the piñata to be utilized properly. Under eight is generally too young in my opinion. Not enough strength and coordination most of the time. Over 16 or so starts to get dicey as well. So many older teenagers these days had rather spend time trying to sneak a drink or look cool or do who knows what than beat some treats out of a colorful figure hanging in a nearby tree. 12 to 14 is the best age. They're big and strong, enough to swing a stick hard enough to break something, but not so old that they aren't excited at getting a crack at whatever is inside. Time is also a factor. I need a minimum of a week or two weeks for prep. I have to make the piñata from scratch and it has to be appropriate to the kind of party it is. I'm not going to bring a birthday cake piñata to a Christmas party or a giant bat to a bar mitzvah. A big part of the piñata getting used in the first place is that it has to fit. Everyone has to assume that someone else put it up or that it's a mystery gift meant for the party. I'll have the note on it that says, Happy Birthday, or Happy Valentine's Day, or whatever. But it's the piñata itself that really sells the whole thing. Already hung from the tree, or similarly secure structure inside the party area, and right beneath it, a wooden softball bat with a little bow on it. Just to make clear that, yes, this stick is meant for exactly what you think it is. The balance of giving enough cues without spelling it out is key. It all has to be very clear and 
palatable while not being overly mysterious or obvious. Something that kids will want to do and that tired, distracted parents won't overly question in the turmoil of party prep and execution. Usually all it takes is a weary nod from a mother or an irritated hand wave from a father and kids are fighting over the bat to see who goes at the first swing. So, what else has to be planned out? Well, the party has to be at least partially outside. Trying to do something like this inside complicates things too much, especially with so many people having cameras these days. Plus, people question things more that are in their home than something outside, odd as that may seem. Weather is also a factor, of course. Not just because I need to find and use the pinata outside where I hang it, but because the materials I use isn't paper, at least not on the inner vessel. It's usually a sturdy but breathable cloth, or sometimes a fine burlap. Either way, rain won't destroy the pinata, but if the cloth absorbs too much moisture, it will make it heavy enough to pull out of shape, and that won't do before the kids decide to have their fun. You might ask, why do you make it out of cloth? That won't break open easily, if at all. Doesn't that defeat the point of a pinata? To which I reply, my friend, you just don't understand quite yet. Because the point of this pinata isn't to break, but to hold what's inside tightly so it may be broken instead. Well, that, and frustrate the children somewhat, as I find they will take out their growling anger on a pinata until it either does break or begins to leak enough that someone grows concerned. And it's then when everyone starts panicking and they open up the pinata. That's the moment my cameras capture. That transcendent moment that isn't muddied by words or ulterior motive or stupid, arrogant plans. It is just pure fear, sorrow, pain. The last thing, the most important thing of all, is that someone attending the party has a baby. It needs to be very young and or small. I like to stick to less than 25 pounds, as otherwise the piñata hangs strangely and doesn't react that much to weaker blows from the bat. And the baby has to be accessible to me in the 24 hours before the party, but also not someone that will be missed before the party's over. This, as you might imagine, is extremely rare, as people tend to keep track of their babies. So we're looking for broken families that don't communicate well or often, or families where the child is some distance away, but not too far, with another parent or family member. I can silence the people meant to be keeping the child, but the party parent has to be satisfied with reassuring text messages for that 24-hour period. Thankfully, nowadays, most people are. And if they are worried, well, they'll be seeing their baby again soon enough. I bind the baby, but just lightly. I don't want her to be uncomfortable or scared as it might move around too much. I give it a light sedative, just enough to keep it docile and still, but not knock it out completely. I wouldn't want her to miss the party, after all. When I'm satisfied that everything is in place, I set up the pinata in my remote cameras, and then I wait. This year's party... This party might be my favorite of all. I love Halloween, and I think this pumpkin piñata is one of my best yet. It's 
paper outer skin looks carved from old orange wood, and its jack-o'-lantern face is that of a leering skull. I considered the face was too scary, but 72% of the children that were going to be at the party fell between 11 and 14, so I felt assured it would only beguile them further to have the piñata be slightly disturbing. Watching from the house I rented across town, I can't help but laugh when they first came out and clustered around it. Sometimes it takes a while for people to notice, but these kids are on it, with one of the bigger boys picking up the bat and taking a practice swing at the air. My heart sinks a little as I see a couple of the adults hustling over, and I can only make out a few words as they discuss the piñata with the kids and each other. It's the standard questioning of where it came from, should they let the kids use it, and if so, should they wait until later in the evening. The woman wants to wait. And I can tell from her body language that it's more to stall so she can ask around as its origins than some need to control the flow of the party. But the man wants to let the kids go ahead. And the more the kids argue with her and cheer him on, the more emboldened he becomes. When the woman finally gives in, he looks triumphant, which is especially funny to me given that it's his baby that I took. The kids are near a frenzy now. The excitement and mystery of the piñata, the promise of physical violence offered, almost taken away, and then returned. <laughs> well, they're almost rapturous as they circle around the pumpkin skull. Looking at their movements and expressions, you'd be forgiven if you thought you were witnessing the commencement of some kind of holy ritual. Perhaps you'd even be right. The big boy still has the bat, and he lines up for a power swing, clearly thinking he can one-shot the piñata and ruin everyone else's fun. My piñatas are made of sterner stuff, however, at least on the outside. It takes seven children before the pumpkin starts to lose its shape, and four before it started dripping crimson from the pumpkin skull's mouth. I intentionally made the fabric there a bit more leaky for theatricality's sake, it took two more kids before the woman came back over and started checking the piñata more thoroughly. This was always the best part. The time when they start to understand, but they don't want to, and they're still some distance away from a deeper realization of what they've all done. The man and a couple of other adults come over with a knife, and they cut down the piñata. Kids keep muttering, and they want to be involved several complaining they weren't done hitting it yet. The woman tells them to get back in a harsh, strained voice, and the circle around the adults widens a little. I can't see to this center with every camera, but a couple are high enough that I still have a good view. I watch as they start tentatively cutting open the top of the pumpkin, leaning closer to the screen as they start to saw faster for some reason. Perhaps they heard something still moving inside. As I lift the top, I close my eyes. I don't care to see the gruesome details, and it would take me out of this precious moment. Even though I don't see it, I can feel their growing horror, even from all these miles away. I'm sharing this little slice of time where everything is still silent, and they're seeing everything clearer than they've ever seen, and it's all so perfect. And then... 
the screaming starts. Holidays are about tradition. It sounds cheesy, but we all know it's true. For Christmas, there's the tree, the mistletoe, presents, and gingerbread men. Thanksgiving has turkey and pumpkin pie. Easter has bunnies and eggs, for some god-awful reason. These are the big ones, the ones everyone knows. But families, communities, have their own traditions too. Isn't that right? Take my family, for instance. We had the special plastic horn that we'd blow into on Christmas Eve to celebrate the coming holiday. It was always the first decoration to hang on the tree, strung up with green yarn. Maybe that tradition comes from somewhere else, but I don't think so. Never met another person who does this. My town has its own tradition for Halloween. If you want to understand it, though, first you have to know about Old Ed, our town's claim to fame. It isn't a terribly long story, so I'll make it quick. Back in the 50s, Old Ed lived out in the Ben Snap Woods all by himself. He was a quiet fellow, kept to himself, didn't seem to care much for other people. Which worked out alright, because other people didn't seem to care for him either. In fact, there were some people in town who really didn't like Old Ed. Nobody can remember why, now. But one Halloween night, a group of men went out to Old Ed's house. They beat him within an inch of his life. But before they could kill him, he escaped, ran right out of the house and down the dirt road at the edge of the woods. The men who'd beat him were too afraid to go after him, thought they might get caught if he'd attracted any attention, so they ran too, all the way back to town. But old Ed kept staggering down that road, dragging himself forward, first on his feet, then on his hands and knees, calling for somebody to help him. Nobody was by that night. Nobody heard. Some local farmers found him the next morning, a mile down the road, stiff and stark. There was an investigation, of course, but the police decided that he'd been beat and chased down by some drifters. That's always who they blame it on when bad things happen. Everybody knew who'd done it. Nobody alive today could tell you, though, because after that day, nobody ever talked about it. But rumors started going around town about the strange things that the men had found in Old Ed's house. Black candles, strange sigils painted on the walls, obscene drawings pasted all over the floor. Not long after Old Ed was put in the ground, the house burned down. And that was the end of it. But every Halloween... They say that if you go out to the road that he died on, Old Ed's Road, they call it, of course, you'll hear him calling for help, cursing the names of the men who killed them, vowing revenge on them and their descendants. And that's why you never go out to Old Ed's Road on Halloween night. Now, it's hard to tell for certain how much of that is true and what speculation. It's verifiable fact that an outcast was killed near the town about 70 years ago. I myself believe it was members of this very town who killed him, but the part about the things in the house, the house burning down, rumors, 
probably built up over years of the retelling of the town history. Still, makes for a great story, doesn't it? And by extension, a good dare. That brings us back to the tradition. What's my town's tradition? (laughs) Well, every year, kids dare each other to go out to Old Ed's Road. Anyone foolish enough to take the dare, there have been many over the years, start at mile marker 17 and walks down the road in the dark, no flashlight, no company, just you, the stars, and whatever else is lurking on the road that night. You keep going until you hit mile marker 18. Then you're safe. The important part is to remember never to look behind you. You have to walk the whole way and never, not once, turn back. Some kids walk it just fine, reaching the end and laughing about how stupid it was, walking down the road in the dark and expecting something to happen. Others show up at the end white as a ghost, shaking and telling tales about a soft whisper or a dragging sound or a wheezing, hacking breath, dogging them all the way down. I only know of a few people who looked back. One was Ellie Thomason. She would have graduated with my older sister, but a few weeks after Halloween one year, she drove off a bridge. They say she fell asleep at the wheel. My sister says she turned around walking down Old Ed's Road and came out the other side a different person. Wouldn't tell anybody what she saw. Hardly spoke a word after that. And then, old Ed cursed her for looking at him, and that's why she died. As for me, I think she just killed herself, but we'll never know, I guess. Another one was Brom Inglekiss, 20 years ago already. He went down the road drunk one Halloween. When he got to the end, he was screaming about seeing old Ed right up until he keeled over and died on the spot. The doctor said it was alcohol poisoning. I don't know about you but I've never seen alcohol poisoning quite like that. There's been a few other reports, here and there. Not so many in recent years since I've become a teenager. It's gotten a lot less popular, this Halloween tradition of ours, fading away like so many others. It's been years since someone turned around, and in the last few years, nobody's taken the challenge at all. Not that I've heard of, anyway. I guess that's why I decided to try it last year. I was 17, and trying to convince my friends that we weren't too old for Halloween. It's always been my favorite holiday, the one day a year I get to be someone, anyone else. And that never gets old for me. The others weren't so sure. We'd gathered at my house to watch horror movies in the basement, we being Katie, Eleanor, Ethan, and I. But by 10 o'clock, we were bored to death and ready to go looking for trouble. It was Ethan who brought it up. Have any of you ever gone out to Old Ed's Road on Halloween night? Katie snorted. (laughs) Why would I waste my time? It's all bullshit anyway. I've never done it. I don't mess with that kind of stuff, said Eleanor. I've always wanted to go when I was a kid, but now that I'm an adult? I shrugged. Seems kind of silly, I guess. Come on, Bella. You're in all that spooky shit. You're telling me you've never gone out to see if the stories were true, asked Ethan. Have you ever been out there? I shot back. 
No. But I'd go. If you wanted to, that is. Katie groaned. Can we do literally anything else, please? What's the matter? Chicken? I asked. She threw a pillow at me. You two have the dumbest ideas, she muttered. Ethan stood up, jiggling his car keys. Come on, he said. Let's go. I'll drive us. Eleanor looked up, pained. Seriously? You want us to drive out in the middle of nowhere just to walk down an old gravel road? You got a better idea? Millions. Well, let's hear them. I'm in. I interrupted, standing up and grabbing my coat. Anything's better than listening to you bitch and moan. With a little cajoling, we finally got Katie and Eleanor to agree to go. We all hopped in Ethan's car and drove off into the night. The radio cranked to the local station playing cheesy Halloween music. By the time we hit marker 17, everyone was back in high spirits. Katie didn't even roll her eyes when Ethan parked the car and turned to look at us. So, who's going? Not it, said Katie. Can we all go? asked Eleanor. Nope, said Ethan, hopping the pee like he always did. I can only be one person. And I drove us there, so I'm exempt. You're all a bunch of cowards, I said, rolling my eyes and throwing open the passenger side door. I'll go. Meet me at mile 18. Don't turn around, called Eleanor as I slammed the door. Even though I put on a show of annoyance, I was actually really excited. I wasn't lying when I said I'd always wanted to try Old Ed's Road as a kid. I've always been kind of a thrill seeker, a natural skeptic, always looking for proof of life's little mysteries. As I took my first step onto the road, I asked myself, Why didn't I do this before? The gravel crunched under my feet as I walked, my path well lit by the moon. It was cool out, but comfortable enough. It was almost nice, with only the sound of rustling grass and nearby owls to keep me company. It was also a little disappointing. It was anticlimactic for me to just walk down the road and see nothing. Maybe that's the real reason I never wanted to walk down Old Ed's Road. I didn't want to prove the story's false, take the magic out of our town's only urban legend. These thoughts kept me occupied for about the first quarter mile. And then... Something in the air seemed to shift. I could feel the change, although I couldn't sense from where it stemmed. I cocked my head to the side as I stopped, listening. There was a sound. It was soft, barely there. But I could hear it just couldn't figure out what it was. I shrugged it off. Probably an animal in the ditch. Kept walking. I started whistling to myself to shake off the shivers that were crawling up and down my spine. Here I go scaring myself. This must be how the story gets passed on. It's easy to convince yourself of anything on a night like this. A little further down the road, a sharp sound brought me to a halt. I quit my whistling and listened again. Silence. Complete and utter silence. No wind whipping in the tree branches, no crickets chirping. 
This was wrong. I swallowed hard, suddenly struggling to breathe. A sick feeling sat in my stomach. This was real fear. Not the kind you get from watching a stupid slasher flick. It, it, it was terrible. It was an icy feeling that screamed, You are in danger, and there's nothing you can do about it. I started walking again, picking up the pace a little. This time I could hear clearly. There was something dragging through the gravel behind me. It was loud, louder than it had been before. Whatever it was, it couldn't have been more than ten feet back. I started walking as quickly as possible, but the thing kept pace right along with me. By the time I'd reached half a mile, I could hear its rasping, panting breath behind me. I could swear it was trying to form words. I stopped again, I'm not sure why. I guess I just couldn't bear to keep walking as though nothing was wrong. I stood there, stock still and trembling from head to toe. I shoved my hand into my pocket to grip my phone. I wanted desperately to turn it on, use the flashlight so I could see around me. But I couldn't. It was in the rules. No flashlights. No company. No turning back. I opened my mouth and forced the words out of my numb lips. Who's there? As if in response, I heard the thing behind me drag in a wet, rasping breath. I took another step. I heard it drag itself along behind me. I asked another question. What? What do you want? Total silence. And then... I broke into a sprint. The dragging noise dogged me never further than a few feet behind. I screamed for Ethan, Katie, Eleanor, anybody to come help me. My screams somehow weren't loud enough to drown out the gasping moans behind me. Matthew. Jacobs. Damn, Matthew, Jacobs. I was past three quarters of a mile. I was so close, just a little further and I'd be safe, just a little more. Suddenly I was struck with a terrible, near irresistible urge to turn around. Look back, it's okay. Don't you want to see what's back there? Don't you want to know for sure? What if it's someone playing a trick on you? Or worse, what if it's not? Look, just a peek. No one will know. Nothing bad will happen. I call myself already starting to turn my head, just barely managing to pull back and face forward. I clamped my hands over my ears to drown out the whispering voice inside my head, tempting me with answers to questions I'd always kept secret. My foot caught on something, a rock, likely, and I pitched forward, my hands just barely coming out to catch my fall. I landed hard, skidding on the gravel, feeling it cut the palm of my hand. My body was acting on instinct. It was still scrobbling forward, crawling desperately through the gravel. I was so close. 
Just a little more and I'd be safe. I could see Ethan's headlights in the distance. If I could just... I felt something cold, close around my ankle, gripping so hard I was sure I'd never shake it off. I screamed once more and shot to my feet, tearing off toward mile marker 18. The hand, or whatever it was, fell away with ease. I barreled right into Ethan as I crossed the line, my breath coming out in great, heaving sobs. Everyone was yelling all at once. What happened? Are you okay? We heard you screaming. You're bleeding. Did you see it? Did you turn around? I heard him. I gasped. He was behind me. The whole way. Bella, you need to breathe. Calm down. Easy does it. Slow your breathing down. But I wasn't listening to Ethan anymore. Even as he steered me toward the car, the other girls casting wary glances back at the road. What did you see? asked Katie, as soon as we were all inside, driving away from whatever the hell was on Old Ed's road that night. Nothing, I said, squeezing my eyes shut, keeping them that way. I didn't see a thing. Word travels fast in small towns. By November 2nd, there wasn't a person in town who didn't know that I'd gone out to Old Ed's Road. Some people tried to ask me about it. I didn't answer their questions, wasn't interested in reliving the experience. None of my friends asked about it, thank God. They seemed to understand that whatever had happened to me on the road, that night was between me and whatever else was out there. This year I'm planning on staying away from Old Ed's Road. In fact, I think I may well lock myself in my room just to be certain I'm safe. Because that night left me with a question that I haven't been able to forget no matter how hard I try. Why was that thing on the road cursing my great-grandfather's name.